Welcome to Making a Scene, the only podcast that can hear you scream in space. I'm Harrison Williams. And I'm Chris Fabian. Each week we invite you to join our chaotic thoughts on film and television. And this week, a director's spotlight on the great Sir Ridley Scott. Is he a sir? He is. Is that confirmed? Yes. I like to imagine they knighted him with one of the aliens, like that big barbed tail thing they got. I mainly just want to see Queen Elizabeth holding that thing. Right. <laughs> or her dressed as the xenomorph, knighting him. And she hot. used the ti- her tiny mouth <laughs> to knight him. This has devolved into a Family Guy sketch really quickly. Yeah. yeah, so Ridley Scott, right? He's been making movies now for, what, 40 years? 40, Still- 44, if I'm not mistaken, because his first credit as director was in 1977 uh, the duelists the duelist isn't he making i know we're jumping like to the end of it is is he making a no i guess he's not i thought i saw something about the duelists being a new movie that was coming out is the that getting remade Duel. the la- ah. yeah it's okay. a historical movie it's based on a true story combat in medieval france ben affleck matt damon okay oh ben affleck and matt damon are writing it Oh, okay. I thought you meant that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were getting back together for a well, they, <laughs> historical they are dueling to drama. Right? Yes. No, I meant. <laughs> I just want to see sad, very thin Ben Affleck just jump back in with <laughs> slightly bloated Matt Damon. Right. Anyway. So, so yeah. I mean, he's been in it for a really long time. He's a extremely well respected director, known for his speed of doing things. So, what would you kind of broadly? What would you say some of his kind of hallmarks are because to be honest like there's a there's a fairly large gap in my kind of knowledge of his filmography there's quite Mm -hmm. a few that i haven't seen sure but there's a few things that seem to that he seems to do a lot to me mainly the that like old sci-fi like 70s 80s sci-fi has that sort of like smoky hazy kind of look to it yeah kind of feel like it's like a film noir kind of wash to it almost mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i can see that to me you know the biggest hallmark which we'll touch on a little bit later and it's not i don't think that this is an intentional hallmark but there seems to be a fair bit of, I guess I would, spiritualism seems like a bad word, but I think that there, thematically, he seems to like to play with the idea of faith and some level of spiritualism in a lot of his storylines. And I don't know how intentional that is and how much of that is just that's one of his kind of like muse of his that kind of inspires him. But that's something that I, I, I've noticed more recently going back to watch a lot of his movies is that there are these these definite undertones of, of faith in his stories, or I guess his, the films that he directs. But I, I guess if there's a hallmark for him, right? I mean, he's he's up there with Spielberg in the sense of he does not like to... He, his hallmark is not necessarily having a hallmark to me. You know, I, when you look at the variety of projects that he's taken on, he's recently gone back to his roots with sci-fi. But, I mean, he's done everything from, you know, deep space sci-fi to war films to you know, small personal, you know, personal stories to crime dramas, biblical stories. I mean, he runs a pretty big gamut. What about you? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so 
to that end of like the kind of hazy film noir and a lot of his sci-fi stuff, I think really what that is is that he uses lighting mm-hmm. as a big like that's kind of a big thing he uses to set the tone in a lot of films. Mm-hmm. And thinking about it, it seems like you see a lot of very strong female characters in his movies. Hmm. I'm just thinking of like Prometheus, Alien, Thelma and Louise, the the replicant gal, Pris from Blade Runner. G.I. Jane. Like, yeah. Hannibal. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's actually something I never picked up on. I guess I wrote off, I would write, I would... I would kind of throw out Prometheus and Alien counting as two just because I do feel that Prometheus and, to an extent, Alien Covenant after it are kind of taking on that, right? I mean, you can only use Sigourney Weaver for so long in the Alien franchise, so I, I felt that that was more of a kind of an homage to the original story by bringing mm-hmm. her in. But it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it is still a strong female character, so points, I guess. Um, right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, but I mean... Yeah, those are kind of the two things that I just like come to mind for me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's interesting getting into his filmography because he definitely you see so many different. I'm just looking at his list again, and you see so many different kind of ages of of what he has put out and the the different film styles that he has released along the way, right? I mean, you start with 1979, you've got Alien, which still, to this day, is, I would argue, his... Would, or I guess I would argue it, but would you agree it would? it is his most culturally significant movie? Yes. Okay. Yes, because... Yeah, I can't think of... Because the other one that jumps to mind is Gladiator... Right. Just because it was a big film, but I don't think it's I don't think it's had the impact that Alien does. And Alien largely had the impact that it does because of a number of factors. The work of H.R. Geiger in the design of yeah. the xenomorph and just some of the some of the iconic moments in it and Sigourney Weaver's performance that, you know, kind of spawned this franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so talking about H.R. Geiger, one of the things that jumps out to me about Alien is, you know, it, it is, of all of the Alien films, it is, I would say, the most horror-centric. It's a sci-fi, it's a sci-fi horror, but I think it leans much more into the horror. The, the sci-fi is kind of incidental, I think. But I think it is possibly the most thematically focused. Everything, I mean, so H.R. Geiger, um, a very surrealist artist who used seem like I don't know what other way to say it basically he he incorporated extremely phallic imagery yeah well and and I think phallic as well just sexual organs in general were were mm-hmm. that imagery was largely incorporated into his work and so alien takes that and kind of runs with it in in pretty much everything that is scary about the xenomorph which is the the monster that alien centers around mm-hmm. everything about it is playing on this kind of sexual horror that I think is just, it is so interesting when you really get down and look into it. Everything from the way that, I mean, the the phallic imagery of the design of the xenomorph, both the tail as well as the the head itself, the mm-hmm. egg opening up, the way that the little spider, the, the face hugger alien, 
the way that it immobilizes you and, and is uh, it very kind of sexually disturbing when you get down to it. Mm. But even some of the scenes that are that can kind of seem a little bit more throwaway, there's a scene with Ian Holm. It is right before you discover the secret of who Ian Holm really is. And right. Sigourney Weaver and him are going back and forth and he does this thing. The first time I saw it, I was I was pretty young for watching it. It was it was definitely the first movie that ever made me like have real trouble going to sleep after watching it. And when I saw this scene, I didn't really know what to make of it, and it took me a while to realize it. But there's a scene where they start. There's a struggle between the two of them, and he takes a rolled up newspaper or mm-hmm. magazine or some sort of pamphlet and starts to basically just cram it into Sigourney Weaver's mouth. And as a as a kid and as a teenager even, I really was just like, okay, well, it was kind of a weird way to, I guess, shut her up. And mm-hmm. really, until I got into adulthood and started to really ponder the kind of sexual symbolism of what was going on, it is, just, it is such a focused movie in that capacity. And I think its skill is that it does it so subtly that it's disturbing to a lot of people beyond just the you know the the monster the in the shadows imagery itself right. right but but there's this there's this subconscious disturbance or disturbing nature of the film that i think people unless they really want to explore it don't quite understand why it's so unsettling and upsetting to them but it i mean that's really i think a lot of what has to do with it and so i think that it, it is such an incredible accomplishment at i mean it's his second directorial effort and he I mean, mm-hmm. creates a true horror masterpiece and a true cinematic masterpiece. It's, I mean, it's an incredible movie. The thing that I remember on revisiting that movie, because I saw it years ago, I was probably in like, you know, high school, early uh-huh. college, and then revisited it a couple years later. It is such a tense yeah. film. The air of tension in that film is just like, overwhelming towards the end. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's there's so many things that make that work. Yeah, but yeah, no the the sexual imagery and the sexual horror element is very intentional. It was actually written with the intention of being, you know, you see movies and like the way women are portrayed or whatever, maybe right. like a male fantasy. Mm-hmm. This is like a male rape nightmare. Right, is the way it was kind of described, and yeah, yeah, and of course you have the 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 famous chestburster scene, which mm-hmm. is. I mean, that's got to be one of the top, like, ten most parodied yeah. film scenes ever. So I, the one thing that, that I always wonder about that scene, of, so there's, a, there's a, a story, and I don't know how many members of the cast and crew have substantiated it by this point, but I remember hearing, I want to say it was, maybe it wasn't Sigourney Weaver, but it was one of the cast members who was in that scene said that, that, the chestburster was not only a surprise to audiences, but a surprise to the other cast members that pretty much the only yes. people in on it were. And I always mix the two of them up. Was it, it William Hurt or John Hurt? One of them was in Lost in Space and one of them is a famous British actor. I believe it's William Hurt. William Hurt. The, yes. yes. Okay. So apparently the only people that were in on it were basically William Hurt, the director and the, the director puppeteers. And, and the puppeteers. Yeah. The, the, the reason that I am skeptical of that is because in 1979, I can't... Oh, it was John Hurt. We're total idiots. It was John Hurt. The less British Ayo. sounding of the two. Ayo! Gotcha. Yep, idiots. Fucking listening to us. <laughs> so, but the amount of... 
I, I get okay, so it's one of two things, right? It's either an urban legend that se- that just builds buzz around the movie, or is a fun story that can kind of hey, be did brought you know? up. Yeah, yeah. Or it is if that's the case, the simplicity with which you would have like that mechanism of the chestburster would have to be to be able to like walk past other crew members and them not know that you have a puppet on and and squibs underneath your shirt. Like if that's the case, that is so mind blowing to me that they would be able to pull that off, not just on camera or in camera, but in real life. So mm-hmm. I don't know. But while we're talking about cast, John Hurt, absolutely incredible. Ian Holm, mm-hmm. a god. Tom Skerritt, one of the more underrated performances in the movie, just because while, I mean, everybody else is losing their absolute shit, Tom Skerritt is this just oasis of calm right up until he's ganked by the xenomorph. Mm, right. uh, Yafet Kodo, who, I th- there was some news about him. Did he just recently pass away? I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, he did now. We, we're, we're calling it, guys. R.I.P. <laughs> Yafet Kodo. Yeah, oh yeah, he did. Sorry. Yeah, so not to make light of it, but yes, he... <laughs> oh... He uh, he passed away Gross. March fifteenth at the I know at the age of eighty one yeah yeah he he just recently passed away so we're dedicating this episode to Yafet Koto so John Hurt Ian Holm Harry Dean Stanton who mm-hmm. is always my favorite part of any movie that he's ever in pretty much yeah, yeah I'd also would kind of wish that he would say of just scream avenge me in every movie that he's ever in but that's just a little <laughs> fantasy of mine so. Yeah, I mean, it's the movie is tip-top. It's very much like Terminator, which has more connections than people would think to Alien, but the it, it is very much similar in terms of the, the tone of it and the performances that the movies get and the mm-hmm. cultural significance and all of that. It's completely understandable why it is turned into this decade-spanning franchise, and mm-hmm. depending on who you ask, might also be understanding as to why those later entries might not be as solid, which we'll talk about, I suppose, a little later. Anyway, anything else we want to talk about on Alien? Well, I mean, it's hard to talk about Alien without talking about Aliens, the yeah. sequel. Sure. Which, just as a quick sidebar, it was amazing how good of a sequel it was in that it was a completely different movie. Right. Because it very much felt like a Vietnam movie. Yeah, you know, because yeah. you've got these soldiers that are being sent off to a place for some reason to get, you know, massacred by this unseen enemy that's all over the damn place. Yeah, and I think that weirdly enough, James Cameron did an even better job of portraying Ellen Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character, as a strong female character that's that's one thing like i always have to point to that movie Mm. as you know in in talking about like oh strong female characters in pop culture like you don't get much more badass than ellen ripley in aliens so i think it so the only pushback i would give on that is i think it depends on what your defining trait for a for strength is within that female character right because i think Mm -hmm. where so they're they're two very different Ellen Ripley's, and I think it's it's not a bad thing. I think it's just one is very much informed by the other. I would say that Ellen Ripley and Alien, her her strength is his, her survival instinct. Right, she is the only yes. character in the film who has a survival instinct, a right. functional survival instinct, the entire way through. Everybody else is either too clueless, too wrapped up in ulterior motives, or too, too petrified, or too or too petrified 
to continue to fight on, right? So uh-huh. I think whereas Ellen Ripley in Aliens is her strength is her leadership abilities and her maternal instincts, which is something that yes. you don't get as much of in an alien, although, I mean, she did end up saving the cat, so mama, <laughs> mama instincts were still there in the smaller form. But, I, yeah, I, I don't know that I would agree that James Cameron developed a stronger female character, but I no, think... No, I, I just think it was the, the maternal aspect mm-hmm. of it, to me, is something, because it's not something you see done often. Sure, that's fair. I That, to me, was just kind of a, a standout way to evolve the character and push her forward and show Agreed. her in a different light than in the first one, but still, every bit is intelligent, resourceful, right. and strong. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it is interesting to see the parallels between the endings of the two movie because they both... They, they feel like the I mean spiritual twins in terms of at the end of Alien, you've got Ellen Ripley slowly. I mean, it's it still like that scene scares the absolute shit out of me. And, and watching it back after the first watch where you basically to set the scene, you've got Ellen Ripley. She's finally gotten onto the escape pod. Clearly nothing else could have gotten in there. So she's feeling good and safe. She sits down at the control board ready to put herself back to sleep as she floats slowly home and then this one super cheesy latex glove bearing hand comes out of nowhere <sighs> and reaches for her in the most unxenomorph thing that you will ever see but it still scares the absolute dog shit out of you and then she slowly gets into a suit and then opens the airlock and fires right he hits her with a hits it with a spear gun and then it goes flying out whereas in yes. Is that? Are you thinking of Alien Resurrection? No, I mean that might also be what happens in Alien Resurrection, but I'm talking about Alien. That's how the movie ends. Is she gets into a space? You're right. Suit. You're right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 So okay. Alien Two, in true James Cameron fashion, basically takes that same exact concept and just ramps it up with a you know 10x budget by uh-huh. making make turning it from a spacesuit into a mech suit, which is still ah oh, so cool. And basically swaps out a spear gun for just punching it, just punching punch, it, just punching it. Yeah. So it is interesting that they, that they are so similar in terms of the basic beats of the ending, but yeah, alien. The other thing I will say is, and this again, will come up later. Alien, I think is the best example of restraint from a horror film. I agree with that. What makes it so scary is that you you get one, and it's the scene that I think for big fans of Alien, it's the scene that is the most memed, which is there. you get one solid look at the whole xenomorph, and that mm. is in the air ducts with Tom Skerritt's character, and it right. does this, like, bear hug with Tom Skerritt. But yeah. everything else is you see a tail, you see a little mouth, you see, like, the dome of its head, that's it. And I think that, for me, is, as we will talk more about later, where the at least the horror elements of later entries really starts to fall apart. Aliens, mm-hmm. you get the, the I, I still don't remember seeing much of the xenomorph outside of the the queen at the end. You get a little bit more of it through it with some of the the marines battling mm-hmm. it. But then Alien Three, you get full blown CGI xenomorph. Alien Four, same thing. Alien Resurrection, I mean, both the Alien versus Predator films have it, and then Prometheus and Alien Covenant 
you also have as much of that as you can see. Right. So I think it, it is it is a huge accomplishment for it just really waiting until you see the whites of their eyes before firing in a hist- in a mm-hmm. directorial sense. Right. So one one other thing to commend it on. And as if it was not impressive enough for him to make his second film that stood the test of time. Uh-huh. He decided to come back, what was it, three years later? Yeah, three years later, yeah. and yeet another one on us with Blade <laughs> Runner. Um, yeah. it, it definitely did not have the instant success that Alien did, but I think that, I don't. I, well, I don't think that we would have really any of the most beloved sci-fi films that we have today were it not for the strides that Blade Runner made. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, the first things was the visual elements of it, mm-hmm. the special effects and the depiction of this dystopian, what was it, 2011, 2017, so. something like that, something. Uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and, you know, where it's constantly raining yeah. <laughs> uh, and is dark and dirty and awful. Yeah. But yeah, and it it also doesn't help. And the reason I think that movie didn't do as well as it may have otherwise, aside from being, well, aside from some other things that I'll get into, it came out in 1982, mm-hmm. which was the same year we got Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, mm. Poltergeist, The Ooh. Thing, Tron, Mad Max 2, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Secret of Nim, Rocky 3, An Officer and a Gentleman, etc., etc. So like, a pretty slow year. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I had no idea. Okay. And wow. E.T. And E.T. Well, I mean. Yes. Yeah. So you got to throw that in there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So big, and it sounds like a big year for sci-fi, right? I mean, you had in that list. I heard Blade Runner, E.T., Tron, Tron. What was there was another one that you mentioned? What else was in the sci-fi list? The Thing. The Thing. That was the other one. Yeah. And Star Trek Two. And Star Trek Two. Well, yeah. I mean, are you gonna call Star Trek Star science fiction? Yes, that's a debate for a different day. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah, no, Blade Runner is. It's it's interesting. It so. Blade Runner. Anybody that tells me that they do not enjoy watching Blade Runner, I will understand and I won't hold that against you. Because I think Blade Runner, for how technically impressive it is Mm -hmm. and how gorgeous some of the scenes are, there is a lot of that movie to slog through. Unless you are a huge fan of Philip K. Dick and really just like it's unless it's just a hundred percent your bag i mm-hmm. understand why it did not immediately have a successful a, a and, super successful run and that's what i was gonna say like for being now being the iconic film that it is it is a bit boring at parts oh for sure and i do find it funny that harrison ford as deckard the titular blade runner he's supposed to be a detective and does basically nothing in terms of detecting other than this overly long scene of zoom out zoom in pan left pan right that goes on way too fucking long but yeah but no the you mentioned it's based on philip k dick story do androids dream of electric sheep Mm -hmm. which is what a like early 2000s pop punk 
right. name for something. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Panic at the Disco had like a like a concept EP about that at some point. Probably, but it's a very like Philip K. Dick's stories tend to be very heavy philosophically, mm-hmm. and so that to me is like a lot of the richness of that film is the the notion of like identity and self and memory and stuff like that it it goes into a lot of that kind of stuff and that to me is kind of the meat and potatoes of the movie it also happens to be very very pretty to oh, look at yeah for all of its like dark noir smoky you know atmosphere that it has sure well and if you ever really want to i mean if you want to just marvel at like if marvel at a practical effect mm-hmm. seeing the scale models of things like the like the i forgot what the was it the what was the name of the company that's making the androids oh my god or if the replicants said that i would have been able to i know i'm sorry but anyway but the the pyramid that that whole corporation is housed in mm-hmm. a lot of the the scenes that are kind of comprised the the flying car shots over the mega city. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it, it is such a mind blowing feat. And I can't imagine it just in the same way that now visual art, you know, visual effects artists sit in front of a screen for, you know, the Tyrell corporation, Tyrell corporation. Thank you. But just in the same way that they, they just sit in front of a screen and just agonize over like one of Shrek's ears for, <laughs> you know, 500 hours, you know, you had, <laughs> You had that same thing just in a physical in a physical space before that. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine how much painstaking attention it must have taken to create those cityscapes for what was ultimately a 10-second scene that they had no idea how good it was going to look when they were done right. with it. But they right. so it's I mean, and that I, I when we're talking going back to kind of hallmarks of of Ridley Scott, the one thing I can hand to him looking at all the movies that we're going to talk about even the ones that I'm not as big of a fan of his world building both physically and kind of conceptually is one of the is, is it's some of the best that I can think of in film he he does not phone it in when it comes to what world he's trying to create or the atmosphere he's trying to create it is always fully realized mm-hmm. and kind of awe-inspiring yeah yeah, and especially in his sci-fi work, atmosphere mm-hmm. plays a big role. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, you you mentioned like Alien being his most kind of culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. I would argue that Blade Runner may be one of the more culturally important, if that makes any sense. Just in the kind of things that it sort of inspired later on, because. Even when you look at something like The Matrix, you can see kind of some DNA that's shared with with Blade Runner. But that kind of like heady sci-fi that's kind of, you know, highbrow, if you will, and has like some heavy philosophical elements to it. And that's where I think you mentioned how spiritualism and things like that are kind of a big part of his, you know, movies, Mm -hmm. one of his muses. You have that in this too because the character of Roy Batty one of the replicants played by Rutger Hauer the relationship he sort of has with his creator his you know sort of father figure in oh my god what's his name Eldon Tyrell yeah I think yeah the relationship he has there it's 
you know, kind of this like father son sort of dynamic, but it's also got a very spiritual element to it as well, because sure. like it's a creator creation kind of thing. And so those kind of themes in science fiction, because mm-hmm. before that, aside from Star Trek, which did have some, it was definitely more of a humanistic kind of approach to science fiction. Sci-fi wasn't really, you know, in literature it always had those kind of overtones, but it was the first time that I can think of that it came about in film, and I think that that film in particular, just because it was so pretty, it was so groundbreaking as far as the visual effects and everything go, Mm -hmm. I think that having those tones in there kind of influenced later filmmakers in that genre. Sure. Well, I think it's interesting that... That spiritual connection, I think, is interesting, and I never really had thought about it until now, but it's mm-hmm. something that is very much mirrored in David's relationship with Guy Pierce's character later on in Prometheus. Yeah. And I'm curious how much of that is just it's coming from the same creator and how much of that was, you know, an intentional... I mean, you you had a little bit of that in Blade Runner 2049. I, I would say that it it kind of views it more from the father's perspective than from the son's in Blade yes. Runner 2049. But yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I'm just I'm working this out as I as I make that realization. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, twenty twenty forty nine is oh, it's so um, fucking good. Yeah, yeah, that, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to kind of take some time to talk about that movie specifically later on down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're gonna. It's definitely not gonna be the last you hear of that. Or oh crap, what's the name of the director? Denis I've forgotten his Villeneuve. name. Two yeah, two episodes in a row now. I've forgotten his name. Yes, yeah. Where you will definitely be hearing more about a number of his films. Yeah, I, I think Blade Runner. Blade Runner is to sci-fi what Alien is to horror. It it paved the way for filmmakers to take a lot more chances and create a lot more fervently than they might have been well, comfortable and I, with. I don't know that even like I don't even think the risk-taking element is. Because it was not a success. That movie was not successful upon its initial release. So I think it was just what it was, because it has become quite a big film, to the point that, what, almost 30 years later, you have a sequel being made. Right. So it it just had an outsized influence on, I think, people who at the time were aspiring filmmakers or storytellers who saw it, and it resonated with them, and so later on you had those kind of thematic elements becoming more and more commonplace in mainstream sci-fi. Just the the way, from the same year, Tron had a very, very outsized influence on design and animation and CGI effects. Sure. Because there's a lot of people working in that field now who saw Tron as a kid, and that was the film that they said, I want to do that. Sure. Uh, but but how much of that do you think is is a product of the year that it came out? I mean, when you go over that list, you've got things like E.T., Mad Max 2, Star Trek 2, films that are a lot more accessible to ma- to mainstream audiences than both Blade Runner and Tron. So, uh, you know, it obviously it, it did what it did at the box office, but how much of that is just the fact that it was in such a competition-heavy year that, you know, people's money and attention couldn't be mm-hmm. risked at the time, you know? I, mm-hmm. I, it, it's one of those things that I, it's all we can do is really go off of the word, off of the, the accounts of people who 
were around at the time to make that decision. Mm-hmm. But to me, right. I'm thinking, you know, people could, but it, if, if it came out in a year where there were maybe one or two big popcorn flicks, would it have been a lot more well successful, received. W- right? Well yeah. received right away, you know, cause I mean, nothing changed about the movie except for the three releases, the three different directors cut releases that he put out. So yeah, I don't know. But I mean, that is also another thing we talked about it already last week, but the you know the, it is also a movie that has changed and been amended more than probably any other film ind- individually. So there's there are a lot of aspects to it. It's a definitely complicated complicated legacy. But um. right. Well, and the other the other part too is we already mentioned it's it's a slow moving yeah. film. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. Especially when you get that incredible narration in it. It just really. <sighs> gets that pace yep. right on anyway yeah blade runner incredible we're gonna i think take a there, we're gonna take a leap in terms of the movies that we're really gonna talk about but it's not to be looked over he released legend three years later it was one of tom cruise's first big films right after risky business i think yeah yeah yeah, which was a, I mean, hyper fantasy. It's up there with like Labyrinth or Dark Crystal as far as the, just the buy-in that you need from a from a movie watcher mm-hmm. in the world that you're creating. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's it's enjoyed a little bit of a cult status, but I, I have not seen it in a very long time. Yeah, I want to say I was probably like eleven the last time I saw that movie. Yeah, so. it's a it's a weird one. For sure. So then we move on to... He also did Thelma and Louise in 1991. This is one of the first points that I can think of where he he doesn't... He's not as consistently creating. I mean, he's got stuff that he's releasing, right? Legend in 85. Someone to Watch Over Me, which I'm not familiar with, in 87. Black Rain in 89. Thelma and Louise in 91. So there are definitely some more active points in his filmography, but this is one of the first points because you've got Thelma and Louise in 91... And then 1492 Conquest of Paradise, which I'm not familiar with. And then White Squall in 96. So there's a pretty big gap there. And then you've got G.I. Jane uh, a year after that in 97. And then up until recently, I would say Gladiator probably got... It was probably his most immediately successful film. Do you think that would be fair to say? I think that I would, yeah. Yeah. So Gladiator, it, it has kind of gotten buried a little bit, I think. Just it, it has not stood up to the sands of time the way that, that some of his other films have. And, and there's probably a couple reasons for that. But you've got a pretty banging cast with Russell Crowe, one of Joaquin Phoenix's earlier adult roles. That's what I, that's what I know the movie for is. Yeah. Because it's been, we were talking about this before we started uh, recording. I saw this movie, I want to say back in high school at a sleepover at three in the morning, and I know I missed parts of it, <laughs> but yeah, so one of those, but yeah, I know that Joaquin Phoenix performance was one that was widely talked about, and that's what kind of started getting him into the kind of career that he has now, which I... It's kind of amazing thinking back that it's been 21 years since he first like showed up in movies, but yeah, well, and he, I mean, he had worked before. The first thing I remember seeing him in was Parenthood, the Ron Howard film with just a, talk about like an incredible cast. That's another movie that I'd love to find an excuse to talk about, but that was still him as a young kid. He was probably like 14, 15 when that came out, but yeah, it's definitely one of the first things that he was kind of headlining and it, it, he had a lot of meat on the bone 
for this movie. Mm-hmm. It also had Connie Nielsen. And for some reason, I'm remembering the actor who plays the the emperor that is or was it richard yeah richard harris was the the original emperor who is killed and kind of sets off the story and he is the uh. original albus dumbledore that's what i was thinking of ah yeah so yeah i mean it, it's a it's it's spartacus uh, as far as the mo- it's, as far as the story is concerned, it's mm-hmm. you know war general gets caught up in politics and blamed for the murder of an emperor, and then he's sentenced to be a gladiator and you know fights for his freedom essentially. Right. Uh, it, it's got it, it was one of the earlier versions, the things that I can think of where there's writing clearly made for the trailer. There's a scene early on where he's he it's the first time that he's seen Joaquin Phoenix in a while, and Joaquin Phoenix is kind of surprised to see him in the as a gladiator because he's wearing a mask during the fight. And then he says this, like, what is it? Like, uh, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered daughter, blah, 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 and I will have my vengeance. And, like, that that's what I can remember in every single trailer coming out. And in the, in yeah. the movie, it feels just kind of ridiculous, and there's no, like, really easy way to transition out of that monologue uh-huh. coming, right. in, you know. So it's... it's uh, it's a it's a fine movie. It it's Didn't also it win best picture. I would not be shocked if it didn't. Let me see. I'm looking, but while we're talking, one of the things that I think has lived on probably more so than anything yeah. else in this movie. Best picture, best, picture. best actor, best costume design, best sound, and best visual effects. Does it, do, do you see what it went up against for best actor? So that was the seventy third. Academy Awards in 2000. Okay. Russell Crowe beat out Tom Hanks for Castaway. Okay. Ed Harris for Pollock. Jeffrey Rush for Quills, in which he played the Marquis de Sade. Okay. And Javier Bardem, who was in Before the Nightfall, Before Nightfalls, which I did not realize he had been nominated huh. that far back, but. I'm not surprised. So having seen only one other one of those other films, I don't know that I'm I'm not a Castaway fan. I'm huh. a few, I, I like Tom Hanks a lot. I just don't really care for Castaway that much. It's it's a movie. I don't know who that movie's for, but I would say that's a I I think that's a not a that's not an upset of a win. I don't think Russell Crowe does very he he turns in a really good performance. I think it's the issue or the kind of underwhelming part of the movie is just kind of the kind of paint by numbers nature of the story. It's just not a terribly right. creative story. What about best picture? Best picture that year the nominees were Hold please. But at any rate, I know I know one of the big things that everybody talked about when that movie came out was the visual effects. And because it's great. Yeah, and because most of the Coliseum wasn't there. Most of it was completely CG as far right. as the crowds and everything. So it beat Traffic, okay. Aaron Brockovich, wow. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and wow. Chocolat. Hmm. Which did not realize Chocolat was nominated for Best Picture. Cause I, didn't, I didn't either. So Crouching Tiger... Cute, but Yeah, Crouching Tiger is a great movie, but I don't think it would ever have won an Oscar at that point in time. And then you said Aaron Brockovich, which is surprising to me because that movie was, that movie kind of felt like Oscar bait a little bit. Like not exactly, but well, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then what was the other one? Traffic. Traffic. I don't know. That's the one with uh, Benicio del Toro. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see. I mean, this is an epic. 
And that, I mean, that's right up the Academy's alley, I feel like. Yeah, that's not surprising either, I guess. The the thing that the, the thing that I remember about this from like a just when I saw it in my in the age I was at, it's one of the first really really graphic bloody movies that I can think of, which I think is this is kind of a turning point. Even you think about movies like like Alien, there was a surprisingly low amount of blood in that movie. This kind of starts as I'm looking at the other movies we're going to talk about. Does kind of start a more gore centered well, trend? Just gorier violence in yeah. mainstream non-horror kind of yeah. movies. Yeah. But I, I think that's something that Ridley Scott continues to embrace as I'm looking at some of the other stuff. Because, I mean, a year later he did Hannibal, which, even if you haven't seen the movie, it, I mean, it's a follow-up to Silence of the Lambs. I don't remember if it's actually based on a Thomas Harris novel or not. I know Red Dragon and Manhunter were, and I know that Silence of the Lambs was, but I don't know if Hannibal was. But anyway, at any rate, like, Hannibal has a scene where... Hannibal Lecter is, it's like one of the final scenes in the movie, and he's basically got Clarice Starling cornered in an apartment, and Ray Liotta plays this FBI agent who's just been taunting him and like really dismissive of Hannibal Lecter, and so he basically cuts off the top of Ray Liotta's head and then starts feeding him his own brain because he's like got him all doped up. So it's just like, it's... Gladiator, I don't know if it unleashed something or if it's just this is the direction that Hollywood was headed. But as I'm looking, like, you've got Hannibal and then you've got Black Hawk Down, Kingdom of Heaven, American Gangster, Prometheus, Alien... Like, all of the movies that we're going to talk about after this are a much more graphically driven violent... Or there's a lot more graphically driven violence than before that, before this, which was very much kind of implied. Well, it's funny you mention that because the... Same year, The Patriot came out. Okay. And that was one of the first extremely gory, like, mainstream movies I remember seeing. And I remember they came out the same year mm-hmm. because I remember that that uh, Gladiator was, like, the other one that I wanted to see at that okay. time. You know what I mean? So Yeah. No, yeah pa- I, don't, I don't know if it was, you know, this was, like, Ridley Scott that kind of started that or if that just literally was kind of where things were going. Yeah. No, the so. Patriot. The Patriot's the one where Mel Gibson plays kind of a soldier type character who's fighting for kind of freedom and just general kind of kind of a savior kind of character. Is that the one you're talking about? No, that's that's Braveheart. This is the one where he plays like a soldier type guy that's fighting for freedom and principles, and something happened to his mm. family. And, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we're on the same page now. Yep. Okay. So yeah, I mean, Gladiator. I I would never tell somebody not to watch it because it's fine. It's. Uh-huh. I, I think, if anything, it's just it, – it is of a time where people expected – it didn't expect as much out of their epics. It's also important to note that this, I think – so it's not fantasy, but it is more of a sword and sandal type of story, which kind of is the weird cousin of, of fantasy. And so Lord of the Rings coming out a few years after this drastically changed the trajectory of what people wanted out of that because you see movies like Lord of the Rings doing very well, whereas movies like Gladiator – follow-ups that were similar to Gladiator started to underperform things like Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans, Ben-Hur. Like, a lot of these sword and sandal type movies started to really diminish after Gladiator, which could be a result of Gladiator just kind of was the peak of what that genre was capable of. But who knows? Yeah. So, as I said, so we've got, we've got the, we've got Gladiator in 2000, Hannibal in 2001, which I will say, not to talk too much about it, it's a, it's a, I think it's a miss 
overall in execution. It does not live up to any of the other installments into the that franchise, uh, past or future. But I I do give him a lot of credit because he first off he makes a movie that looks a lot more like his brother directed it than he did. It's uh. a much more like. Uh, his brother, by the way, we haven't really talked about this. His brother is Tony Scott, who got his start, I think his first directorial, di- or, well, he did The Hunger in 83, but then Top Gun is what most people know of him as kind of uh-huh. like his his launching film. Yeah. Tony Scott is definitely, he's kind of like the thinking man to Michael Bay, I would say. That's not a bad way to put it, actually. Yeah, he, he, is, he is very action-oriented, and like, you know, he did Crimson Tide, which, if you put Crimson Tide and The Rock next to each other, a lot of people would consider those to possibly be directed by the same person. And they're not. One is Michael Bay. One is Tony Scott. But Tony Scott has a much more specific yes. cinematography style, which is yes. hyper-saturated, quick-cut, fast-paced transitions. And in, in that, he'll take... I was actually talking to a work colleague about this. They had just recently watched the movie Domino, and... You know, there's like a scene where someone lights a cigarette and rather than being, you know, the way it would be shown in any other movie, it's you have a shot of like click, flame, right, light, inhale, yeah. ember, exhale. Mm-hmm. So like in that he like will slow things down but still keeps that same pace. Right. By going on like a micro level. But yeah, that very quick kind of frenetic editing pace. Yeah. Tony Scott, I will say, and this is a controversial statement, I would say that Tony Scott is the more consistent of the two Scott brothers when it comes to my preference of his films. Like, I'm looking at Tony Scott's filmography. I'd love to have a spotlight on him at some point. There are very few misses in this list. He tackles, just like his brother, he tackles a wide range of films. And I think almost every time he hits the mark or exceeds. But what, one of the things that's so striking is it's high contrast, high saturation, but the color tones that he plays with, the color grading of his films are very mm. intentional and very graphic, almost like Zack Snyder-ish. And Hannibal is very much that as well. There's very specific changes in the film that go from very warm color tones to all cool. But it's, it's just interesting to to note and and again i do give ridley scott credit for like trying to follow up silence of the lambs if you did not start that is a huge ask and obviously he'd built up enough prestige at this point to feel confident in taking that on but it's still i i would never want to take on that job that just seems like you're setting yourself up for an impossible ask of people yeah but going from gladiator to hannibal in 2001 so a year later the same year as hannibal he also released black hawk down which is Uh, while not the most successful critically or just, I think, our preferences, uh, mine at least. It was fairly well received. No, it was definitely, it was well received, but I think it, it, well, okay, so it it has not, it has not held up the way that, like, Saving Private Ryan has or a lot of the more recent films. It came out around the same time as as Saving Private Ryan, and it just... Within a few years, yeah. Yeah, it's a tougher story, though. Like, there's nothing really inspiring about the story. It's a rough watch. When's the last time you watched it? It's probably been about, like, five to seven years or so. Okay. But, like, I've seen it more than once, and it's it's pretty bleak. Yeah, it's and rough. It's, it's very, like... I don't know. It's, it's very much like a... This is the story... Boom, 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 boom. It's done. Like, it, it's 
very much just kind of like a very singular sort of event that it kind of portrays. Does that make sense? Yeah. So to me, the thing that jumps out to it is that it is such, it feels so long. Yeah. But I, I think what you're saying is that it doesn't really take any time to reflect. No. Okay. No. So yeah, it, it, it is it is a very kind of almost documentary style to it, which is just these are the events that happened. There's maybe one scene that I can think of where there's any sort of pause to kind of appreciate, for lack of a better term, what's going mm-hmm. on. But everything right. else is just very it's also like normally I like to talk go over banger casts. I don't know if we have the time for this one. It this has <laughs> literally every everybody in it. Everybody that was working in 2001 is in this movie and it's you know Nolan films like every time you watch a movie you find a new element of the story that it's like oh I didn't notice that before that's this movie but with casting instead like every time (laughs) I go into this movie I find a new actor I'm like holy fuck when did like when when did they go back in and digitally add this actor in because they definitely weren't in it the first time you know it's funny that you mention now that I'm I'm thinking about it Black Hawk Down was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Yep. Who produces, or at least for a time, produced the vast majority of Michael Bay's films. Mm -hmm. And I think Tony Scott worked with him quite a bit, too. I believe so, yeah. So I'm curious to know if he had anything to do with Hannibal. He did not. Who? Ridley Scott? Uh, Or Tony Scott? No. no, no, Or Bruckheimer? Um, Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting catch yeah no i just think that's funny that you you mentioned that because i that just like clicked huh anyway so yeah black hawk down story of uh, what was supposed to be a not necessarily routine but a uh, well yeah I, i think they they viewed it as a pretty routine snatch and grab operation in somalia which turned into a nightmare many soldiers were sent in without body armor of any kind and they essentially were brought into like a little mini Vietnam. They were completely surrounded, cut off from each other, cut off from their base, and it's rough. Like, like I said, like there's like Saving Private Ryan's a rough movie, but there are moments of inspiration or heart. This movie, it's just two hours and twenty minutes of look at how much shit these guys went through. Yeah, yeah. but another good one. Another another should watch at some point. Um, For sure. Now, moving on. So we got in 2003, a movie that I would... I, this is the one that I will say... I feel like this is the... If there's one movie that you haven't seen on this list, watch this one. And it's Matchstick Men. Came out in 2003. I don't remember it being a huge release. At least not like... A, it wasn't a huge advertising or largely advertised film. But it's got Nicolas Cage, Sam Rockwell, Bruce McGill, who's one of those actors like you see him and you're like, oh, it's that guy. It's a Confidence Man movie with the perfect amount of Nick Cage weirdness thrown in. Confidence Man movie. Yeah, I've never I've never heard that term before. But what I know did you exactly think "con" you and "con man" stood for? Oh, okay. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> it is essentially the story of a con duo played by Nick Cage and Sam Rockwell. Who Nick Sam Rockwell is Sam Rockwell, 
and Nick yep. Cage <laughs> is a obsessive compulsive. Doesn't he have Tourette's or something? I think. Well, yeah. They're not a hundred percent clear on everything that's going on with him. I think they attribute most of it to his obsessive compulsive. Because yeah, there's a few things, right? Like he's deathly afraid of, like if a door gets left open, in like leading to his house, he'll go into panic mode. Yeah, he does have Tourette's outbursts, but I kind of just attribute that to like Nick Cage's weird thing. And but a, a lot of it is like cleaning. Like he is always cleaning cleaning things around him but he also like he always eats the same thing like his dinner is always just a can of tuna fish and then water i think so it's like there's just a bunch of weird stuff going on but it what's impressive about the movie is that it's it's the first thing that i ever remember seeing sam rockwell in which is well mm, i don't remember whether i saw this or galaxy quest first so it's one of the first things um, I think it probably was the first thing i saw him in actually really yeah it's and he is so like Oh, it's such a great introduction for him because it, it mm-hmm. it's what he does so well, done so well. But so basically they're just doing their thing and then all of a sudden Nick Cage is kind of tracked down by a uh, younger woman played by Allison Lohman. Because he, he runs like a – doesn't he like run some kind of lottery or something? So he his scam is basically that he he calls people and convinces them that they won a sweepstakes and then shows up to their house saying that he is a federal agent and he is investigating right. so he's basically conning people with a con like he convinces them that they've been conned and then gets all of their information to track right. quote unquote what's going on and the pro- like when he gets their information then he he cleans them out but uh, yeah so then his daughter played by Allison Lohman shows up and so it's uh, kind of a father-daughter movie about how am I gonna you know balance this seedy lifestyle with now being a dad and there are plenty of twists and turns along the way but mm-hmm. it is a wonder it mm, I'm looking it might be his best overall performance. It, it might. It, this might be Ridley Scott's best performances in a film, I think, from what it asks of the actors and how consistent it is all the way through. Hmm. I'm just. I'm look. I can't see anything that I would want to challenge that with. Like mm-hmm. we've talked about it. Like Alien is great, but it's it, it is a little flat in terms of like what the actors are doing along the way. Like it's pretty similar mm-hmm. all the way through. Blade Runner, kind of tough to get through at certain points with these really standout scenes. Gladiators, you know, it is what it is. Black Hawk Down, kind of the same thing. Matchstick Men, just to me, it could just be expectations too. Because Matchstick Men, I did not expect much out of. And it's such such a good movie. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. (laughs) It's one I've actually been meaning to revisit recently. Because I probably have like a dozen or so movies that I want to watch again. And Mm -hmm. that one is definitely part of that rotation. Yeah. So. Oh, it's so good. All right. Mm. I'll keep on going on about it, but we'll move on. So you got matchstick man in 2003, two years later, we get kingdom of heaven. We touched on this. Another big epic. Another big epic. Yep. Touched on it a little bit last week, you know, not to rehash too much, but I think this really is the kind of most clear example of faith outside of, I would say, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, where faith is just a huge driver of the story. Obviously, the story is about 
essentially a blacksmith who is, Orlando Bloom playing a blacksmith, which is kind of his thing, and <laughs> brought into, he is actually the son of someone who's not really like royalty, but he's like a noble. So he takes up his father's place in Jerusalem. And then it is ultimately an epic between trying to keep the peace between Christians and Muslims and the ultimate battle over Jerusalem. It is definitely like if if you want a Lord of the Rings type of movie, you're not going to get it. But if you really enjoy uh, a movie that has a lot of attention paid to historical accuracy, a lot of attention paid to costuming and set design and epic battles, you do get epic battles out of it. It's just not like, you know, Legolas sliding down a staircase on a shield. Right. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a really solid movie, and it's also got an incredibly good cast. It's got Ed Norton, Liam Neeson, David Thewlis, Orlando Bloom. It's actually got an early performance from uh, Nikolai Coster-Waldo, who is uh, Jamie Lannister. Yeah, he's in it very briefly. It's also got an early performance by uh, Michael Sheen, or not early, I don't know where this falls in his filmography, but it's got Michael Sheen in it for a few minutes, so that's kind of cool. It's got a really good... It's also got... Uh, oh, I keep on forgetting about people. Ava Green and Jeremy Irons and... Oh, what's his name? Brendan Gleeson. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, talk about a stack cast. Yeah, it's got a really, really good cast. It's got Brendan Gleeson playing someone who, like, is designed... Like, I have a tough time not liking Brendan Gleeson. This well, movie... Well, and I can say, in as a person, he is a very nice guy. I met him... Oh, really? Quite as a matter of fact, little sidebar. I actually delivered the first four scripts from Mr. Mercedes to his hotel room. Huh. As a matter of fact, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that comes through in his work. But in this movie, <laughs> in this movie, he it, he is a very very unlikable guy. Right. So k- kudos to him for being able to be diverse in his performances but yeah no it's a really good movie it if it's your thing you'll really like it also has a director's cut that is definitely advised to watch over it adds like 30 to 30 to 40 minutes onto the runtime but in my opinion Uh worth it and it's already a long movie so like it's you have to be willing to sit through it but definitely worth a watch one of the things so i think another thing that's significant about this movie is it was not a success in the bo- yeah. at the box office. Like it was kind of a failure because it was a very expensive movie. Right. And so then from there, Ridley, Ridley Scott went into this like very weird phase, if you ask me, because he just started. I want to say it's the next like what four or five consecutive years. So that came out in 05. You've got a good year in 06. Uh huh. It gets broken up by American Gangster in 07, but 06, A Good Year, 08, Body of Lies, 2010, Robin Hood. He did these, like, just Russell Crowe movies that nobody saw. (laughs) And that a lot of people, like, I never saw, the only one of those, oh shit, no, I did see Robin Hood. I saw Body of Lies and Robin Hood, but it was like, I, I don't know, like, Body of Lies was good, Robin Hood was puzzling and i i don't understand what i i don't remember the movie much at all huh even though i know i saw it and i know i've seen it in the last 10 years so you know you would think you'd have some but i just remember being like what the fuck does this have to do with robin hood like <laughs> yeah so robin hood also like so i remember seeing it shortly after it came out and i don't uh-huh it doesn't stand out to me so i would say it wasn't stellar but I don't right. remember there being anything offensively bad about it. It's just, it. I mean, 
I don't either. I just I yeah. just remember being like, huh. Yeah. It was <laughs> it was it I, I appreciate the fact that they were trying to add a little bit more of a historical context to mm-hmm. like if Robin Hood was a real person, this is probably what who he would have been like. And there have been a uh-huh. number of movies that have tried to do that since. But I, to me, this one, if I were going to have to watch one of those types of movies, I'd probably pick that one. Just because, mm. I mean, it's basically Russell Crowe doing the same thing he did in Gladiator from a basic performance level. It's just a different mm-hmm. setting and a different, you know, different set of story beats. But otherwise, I mean, it, it was fine. But yeah, it is weird yeah. that the, there was this, like, Russell, this, like, Russell Crowe love yeah, affair. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. There's one other thing I was. Oh, I was going back to what you talked about with Kingdom of Heaven. I'm looking at what came out in 2005, and this is another one that almost. I'm curious if it's similar to what might have happened with Blade Runner. So 2005, also the year of King Kong, Harry Potter uh-huh. and the Goblet of Fire, Batman Begins, Brokeback Mountain, Pride and Prejudice, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, V for Vendetta, Sin City, Constantine, Forty Year Old Virgin. Sky High, Star Wars Episode Three, War of the Worlds, Madagascar. So I mean, it's another year. A lot of heavy hitters. A lot of heavy hitters, and and Madagascar. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is where you really start to see graphic novel and comic book inspired movies really starting to get a big role. So Kingdom mm-hmm. of Heaven being kind of the antithesis to that. Yeah, I can imagine that a lot of this might have been just this is not what was it, like that was not what was in vogue. I think Ridley Scott possibly was kind of resting on his laurels a little bit in terms of what, you know, what he was making to sell well. Yeah. So then in 2012, we have Prometheus, which we're going to put a pin in that. We're going to circle back. But after that, in 2013, was The Counselor, followed the next year by Exodus, Gods and Kings, Mm -hmm. and then The Martian in 2015. You said you haven't seen any of those? So I haven't seen The Counselor. <laughs> I looked up plenty of articles about how offensive Exodus Gods and Kings was with oh, Christian Bale. Yeah, but I'm looking at, the, well, Sigourney Weaver, John Turturro playing pharaohs and pharaohs, I guess, for whatever the... Uh, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. But I also forget, yeah, Aaron Paul was in it. Ben Mendelsohn was in it. Ben Kingsley was in it. Shockingly, the person that... If anybody's going to pass as Egyptian, it would probably be Ben Kingsley. Yes. Um, and he plays none. But yeah, so you've got a Brit, two Australians, I'm not sure what John Turturro is, and then Aaron Paul and Sigourney Weaver all playing Egyptians or huh. Israelites. So yeah, that's about as much as I remember from the movie. It's just that it was yeah. a wildly tone-deaf offensive casting mess. But yeah. I'm sure it was uh, pretty. Probably, but yeah. I didn't see that one. I did see the other two, though. <laughs> yeah, Counselor... Counselor struck me more as more of a Tony Scott Tony Scott movie than a Ridley Scott movie from the ads at least. So the Counselor was not great. Okay. And I am not going to throw that at Ridley Scott. So it was written by Cormac McCarthy. Yep. The movie itself was. It was not written oh. by like it wasn't a novel he wrote. He wrote the movie. Oh. And to me, the the big problem because it's a very like awful bleak yeah. story. Yeah. Like it is, there is no fucking like happy ending anywhere to be found in that movie, which in and of itself is fine, and also a hallmark of Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, but 
this is a situation where you have somebody who is a novelist mm-hmm. who is good at being a novelist mm-hmm. writing a movie and they're two different you know that it's not always the case because gone girl was written by the both the book and movie were written by the same person mm-hmm. whose name escapes me at the moment but the movie was brilliant yeah this was an original work that he wrote for the screen and i don't know that to me was kind of the thing that just some of the writing didn't quite yeah. work and Cor- Cormac McCarthy did the road right the Road and No Country for Old Men. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all I know about The Counselor was it looked like a really solid cast doing a lot oh, of stuff. Oh, it was. Doing a lot of stuff that just did not inspire me to go to see it. It just it didn't <sighs> look terribly interesting. Well, it has one of the most terrifying, like, murder devices that I've ever seen in oh. anything. Okay. I forget what they call it, but it's basically this little box that has this, like, steel wire that runs through it. Okay. And you, like, put it over someone's neck, hit the button, and then it just slowly, like, closes around and just decapitates them. And it's, like, solid steel, and there's nowhere to stop it, and it's just, like, it's horrifying. That's rad. Absolutely horrifying. Yeah, so. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So, like, if that, you know, if that sounds interesting, like, go right ahead. But yeah. otherwise, like, eh. Yeah, I mean, Fassbender, so, Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, Javier Bardem, Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's this should have been great. Mm-hmm. Weird. And it's definitely one that's very, very, very low on my list of, like, maybe I should give it another go. Yeah. And then I'm like, <laughs> or I could watch one of the hundreds of thousands of other movies that right. exist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then um, The and, Martian was the other one you mentioned. Yeah, that was the 2015 Best Comedy mm-hmm. at the Golden Globes. Yep. Which is infuriating, and part of the reason, <laughs> right, while you don't even don't even care to see it, right? Yeah, no, I... I it, so, The Martian, you know, it, it seemed like a fine story. It, I remember mm-hmm. feeling like I saw most of it from the trailers, and it mm-hmm. feels... I think probably for the same reason that I just don't really find Castaway like a super enjoyable watch. It just kind of strikes me. It's probably more interesting. It's probably more interesting than Castaway just from mm-hmm. the sci-fi element, but it's still just kind of, eh, it's just not my bag, I guess. I'm sh- I, I don't think okay. it's a bad movie. I just don't think it's for me, but it yeah. It wasn't a bad movie. It yeah. was a very good movie and I quite enjoyed it. And then I moved on with my life. Yeah, just fine. Yeah, but, but yes, the bestowing of best comedy by the Golden Globes was a good just kind of reinforcer to tell me that i had i just based on principle i shouldn't watch Uh it just i didn't want to contribute to that nonsense i'm a man of principles chris no one's perfect as as you'll see in a few minutes Mm -hmm. when we when we get into talking about prometheus and alien covenant which is his next film came came out in 2017 along with all the money in the world Mm -hmm. which he made and then made most of again because yeah. that was when everything. Kevin's, so yeah. it, yeah, it originally starred Kevin Spacey, and that when everything started coming out about old Spicy Spacey, Oof. he literally recast him and reshot most of the movie. And I want to say it was done in about. I want to say it was a little over two weeks. Yeah, it was a blistering pace. It was crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. So I remember 
And from what I understand, I have not seen it, but I, by all accounts, and part of this could be people just wanting to really just like shed off any possible good words for Kevin Spacey, but it seems like the cast and crew largely considered it to be a step up just purely performance-wise. That Christopher mm-hmm. Plummer turned in a performance that Kevin Spacey did not. And so I, I, it seems like such a weird thing. Obviously, it's it's a bizarre circumstance, right? But yeah. to replace a middle-aged, late, late middle-aged actor in old man makeup and replacing him with someone who does not need the old man makeup seems like <laughs> i just wonder like the casting director like it makes me like did christopher Plummer just not was it was it not on his radar before or did he not have what did he have a scheduling conflict like why would you not go for someone like christopher Plummer from jump i guess I you know, know kevin spacey was still riding high on house of cards and i mean i don't know it just seems yeah. like all the money that they probably spent on makeup for him all the money in the world, really. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I, it, it's it's on my list of I, I probably should see this at some point. And I can't wait for, like, some weird 8chan thread to be calling for, like, the spacey cut of all the money in the world. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, it strikes me as a movie that's probably very enjoyable. The story, I, I, the little bit that I am familiar with, the actual story, is it's a pretty riveting true life or, you know, based on a true event story. So probably mm-hmm. probably worth getting into at some point. Holy crap. It took nine days to reshoot. Wow. How does it he, say Does it say so how I'm much he had to reshoot? He, let's see. No. I'm looking at this interview he did with Vulture. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how he filmed The Martian in about 70 days. And typically that's a production that would have, you know, been like a hundred days alien covenant was shot in 73 days which typically would have been about a 10 month 70 job. days yeah alien Holy covenant shit. complicated film in 73 days that would normally be 130 god that's crazy Damn. but yeah i just i think that's a that's a stunning kind of statistic and and also just kind of goes to show that like you know like his movies or not, and he's definitely one of those directors where you're going to have ones you like. Right. And you're definitely going to, and you very well could have ones you don't, just because he is all over the board thematically and just kind of the types of stories he tells. That's just, holy shit. The dude's in his 80s. Yeah. And, you know, he's got, like, the, the amount of stamina it takes as a director doing something, especially something as big as Alien Covenant. Right. Like, in that short a time. So, wow. So, uh, Alien Covenant. Yeah, Alien and Covenant Prometheus. and circling back to Prometheus, yeah. So, we have different takes on this movie. Chris, why don't you, let's start with your take, and then I'll tell you why you're wrong, and then we can just kind of okay. go from there. All right. So, I think Prometheus is an absolutely phenomenal movie. I think it is... It's some of the best sci-fi that I've seen in in years. The reason for that, you have that signature kind of atmosphere 
that you would see in Alien or Blade Runner or some of his other sci-fi work. And it's a movie that asks a lot of very big questions mm-hmm. and has none of the answers. Okay. It doesn't profess to know. So basically Prometheus is a super prequel to Alien. And it's about the ship that the Weyland yutani Corporation has sent out to this planet. They find these beings that are have DNA identical to our own, and it seems that they may have been the origin of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And the main character, played by Numi Rapace, is she wears a cross. And her boyfriend, played by Logan Marshall Green, who is, by the way, a Charleston native, you know, is like you're throwing that like why are you ignoring this like these centuries of science and all of this and because she believes that there is a divine origin to humanity and so there's this kind of like thematic tension going back and forth there but then you also have some of the I think most innovative like horror scenes for a movie like that because obviously you have these people that they go to this alien world. You can't breathe the atmosphere. They find this place that has these creatures living in it. Most of it is going to be your standard creature violence, but there's one scene in particular that I found intense and frightening and just so brilliantly done. Which one and is I, that? So, with you don't it, yeah, as, as, as much as you want to say without spoiling it. Well, okay, so semi-spoiler here so elizabeth shaw that's nomi rapace's character realizes at some point she is pregnant with this some alien something Uh so she runs into the ship and puts herself in this robotic surgery machine okay that's what i was thinking extract yes and it's it's terrifying and Mm -hmm. just yeah it's it's a brilliant film Ask big questions, offers no answers. I love it. And and not to ignore Michael Fassbender as David, the android that is with this crew, who gives a predictably incredible performance because sure. he's a, he's Michael Fassbender. So yeah. So okay. Anything else you want to throw in? I mean, that's my basic premise for loving it. Okay. So. You, I should start by saying, for people that love it, totally keep on loving it. I'm not here mm. to take away things that you don't that that make you happy. I'll start with what I agree is good and successful with the movie. The basic premise is an interesting one. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was there not an element of like J.J. Abrams? Wasn't there a suspicion early on that this was a prequel to Alien, and Ridley Scott said, "No, it's not." And then it was kind of the way that J.J. Abrams was like, no, Khan's not going to be in this movie. And then it was totally Khan in the movie. That actually does sound a little familiar. But yeah. I so don't that, remember it being a blatant lie quite the way that, like, no, Khan's not <laughs> in this movie. And then you have this moment where yeah. <laughs> he literally says, I am Khan. Khan. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So like um, Benedict, open your mouth really weird and wide when you say that. Yeah, which I mean to Benedict Cumberbatch is just open your mouth. But <laughs> yeah, so also we definitely need to do. I think we need to do an episode just on the Star Trek reboots because I think that's a really interesting story. But 
getting mm -hmm. back to Prometheus. Yes, so basic premise, very interesting. I would have liked this movie, I think, more had they kept it out of the Alien franchise. The Alien connections feel shoehorned in, and where whereas, whereas the things that we don't know about the Xenomorphs in the original Alien film uh -huh. seem like a mystery, the things that we don't understand, the plot holes... I would say they're plot holes between how things like how Numira Pace gets pregnant from, you know, seemingly David takes a dot of black goo from an alien ship that is sort of a, that is supposedly a bioweapon, but we never really get a clear example as to how that bioweapon exactly works and how that somehow impregnates her because... Logan Marshall Green got the dot in a drink and then Logan Marshall Green had sex with her and then somehow like that got her pregnant with a weird alien thing that we've never seen before. I feel like you just kind of explained how it happened. Okay, so if that's if that is the how it happened, I to me that feels like there doesn't seem to be logic within that. Like I don't understand how that could happen. And obviously like it's sci-fi and so like you know I, I feel like if you're going to make that narrative leap you need to be able to show some sort of explanation you don't have to show it exactly like by you don't have to give me a biology lesson but how a some sort of like thing that turns you into a zombie when introduced into a human and then that human has sex with someone implants an alien into them i just don't see how that narrative like i don't see how that makes sense so that to me that's an issue so like when we talked about when we talked about like the faith element with ridley scott this is the mm -hmm. only movie where i get kind of a preachy ish vibe and that could be just me i don't know if that's a an issue that other, anybody else had but it feels like when numi rapace's character is talking about faith it does obviously lend to her being a very fa you know a, a person who is very rooted in her faith but it almost seems uh -huh. like the from to me when she's speaking to different characters about it it feels more like she's like just narratively it seems like she's talking to the audience and can try and i don't know it just it feels kind of preachy well the the line that i always so like you're right and that she's like obviously somebody like very rooted in what she believes and the, the line that I remember is, you know, it's like, oh, this is where we came from. You know, they find the engineers, these creatures that they believe right. are the progenitors of humanity on Earth. And she says, where did they come from? Sure. Who created them? You know, and it's like, it doesn't give you an answer one way right. or the other. But it, it really just, to me, it just kind of presents the two like arguments you have the purely secular naturalistic one and then you have the more spiritual divine sure. kind of element there yeah and that so that stuff's all good david's performance is fantastic and david I, going back and watching it recently david is someone that i wish my dislike of the movie had not tainted my opinion of him because i think that i would not have given michael fassbender credit for david after watching it the first time but watching it, I know we had we've had a couple conversations with some other friends about the movie, and viewing it through the lens of David as the main character does make the movie more enjoyable to me. I think a lot of okay. just from a, so from a performance perspective, it has this problem that a lot of blockbusters do now, which is that they show you characters with with characters played by big actors and expect you to become invested in them because they're played by big actors. Like there's a scene at the end where the pi the two pilots 
and the I guess the ship captain. He's not like the mission captain, but he's like the ship captain uh, played by Idris um, Elba. Yeah, where they're all basically flying their ship into the engineer ship to disable it. And it's kind of played as this big sacrifice, but we know almost nothing about these characters. So it just feels uh-huh. like kind of a hollow sacrifice just because we don't like, yeah, it's sad, but like, why do we really care about this happening? You haven't given us a lot of reason sure. to care about these guys. Like it could be anybody in those chairs as far as I'm concerned. Charlize Theron, I felt was just kind of a waste. She felt so one dimensional and just kind of like a, just a really flat character overall and i i, I, I mean, expect a lot more out of charlie's theron oh yeah well and i think that that it was her yes because she's she's incredible in yeah. most things but yes her character was very one-dimensional she was the kind of ambassador of the Wayland yutani corporation yeah. that kind of that funded this whole expedition and she's like the voice of the the shareholders as it were so she has this very kind of like one note sanctimonious corporate this is what the shareholders yeah. want blah 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 kind of presence oh, yeah god and then there's they do this thing that i hate in blockbusters now where they assume that the movie is either going to have is going to be full of kids that snuck in and aren't really super savvy with you know different storytelling conventions or they're just idiots in the theater and so there's this thing where like it's pretty clear, spoiler alert, it's pretty clear that Charlize Theron is the daughter of Wayland. And just to make sure that, like, every idiot in the audience knows, she's like, she says something along the lines of, like, well, you should know, you taught it to me, Dad. And it's just like, come the fuck on. Like, this is rid- <laughs> fucking ridiculous. Like, get a grip. Like it's it's lazy shit like that. That's why I, the reason. Okay, so the pro, so those are the things that I like. The concept itself is really good. David is David is a really is a really impressive character, and I think if you ignore other characters, the movie's better. Like if you just focus on that one really good character, it's a much more enjoyable movie. And visually, yes, it is an incredibly, it is a beautiful movie. The, the Visual effects, the sets, the costumes, everything there, great. Exactly what I would expect out of someone with Ridley Scott's pedigree. The things that I don't like. It does feel preachy. Most of the performances are lackluster. David stands out to me now even more so than before because I was more receptive to looking at him. But everybody from Logan Taylor Green to Numi Rapace to Idris Elba, Charlize Theron, all of the crew, none of them grow or change in any way at all. They are all the exact same character the whole way through, which to me makes for a really fucking boring movie. The It also suffers from the sunshine syndrome in a couple of places where it starts off as this really, like you said, a really contemplative, really existential film about like, where are we from? And holy shit, what would happen if we discovered, like if we actually met our creator, right? Like that's a really interesting story. And then uh-huh. you get, like, Zombie Man just thrown the fuck into the movie. And it just, it completely shifts the tra- trajectory of the entire theme of the story. And then you get it again when you see the begin- the first scene of the movie is the engineers and there's this, like, midsummer esque I'm going to throw myself off a waterfall kind of thing. 
and it's uh-huh. like this really like what the fuck is going on here? But then uh-huh. later on, he's just like the Hulk. He's just going around smashing people, and it's just like <laughs> it's. So it reminds me, it's like you get the third act of Sunshine, which ruined, not ruined, but it really just puts a really bitter taste in your mouth for the first two acts of Sunshine because it's so just good, just smart science fiction. But Uh Prometheus has that but twice because it keeps on just throwing stupid popcorn bullshit at you in an otherwise pretty interesting, thoughtful premise. What else? Fuck, this movie sucks, man. I'm sorry. Uh, to me, it sucks. I. It's just it, it. It. It has a seed of a good idea, and then I'm. I'm curious if Ridley Scott intended for this to be a sci-fi or a, a an alien prequel, or if this was a studio thing, because it seems thrown in. It seems like that Martian Manhunter scene at the end of Snyder Cut, where like, <laughs> oh, cool. Now this thing's a xenomorph. I will say, and this isn't to discredit. I. I have trouble with watching certain types of horror scenes where, like, you're for it's. I don't want to call that scene in the in the medical pod torture porn, mm-hmm. but it. I feel like it almost it almost earns it. It's like just south of torture porn for me, and it, it's just like it's just not it's not enjoyable for me, just because like you're just. It's. I feel like uh, what's his name from Clockwork Orange with my eyes just like forced open watching this stuff while terrible shit's happening on the screen. It's like you can't turn away because you need to know what happens next, but you really like there's nothing interesting or enjoyable about what's happening. It's just like really fucking brutal. But right. to your point, it is really it. It is also I think that was the intent of the scene. So in that yeah. respect, it is very successful at what it was attempting. I just don't like what it was attempting. Yeah, I just it. So, okay. So you mentioned how, like, the alien connection feels shoehorned in. And to a degree it does. However, I think that, I think there was kind of a thread about that was a weapon of the, designed by the engineers of some sort to be, like, their perfect organism. Okay. But when you talk about shoehorned alien connection... That's how I feel about 2017's Alien Covenant. Because okay. based on the way I feel Prometheus was, uh-huh. with its like heady themes and stuff like that, like the first half to two-thirds of Alien Covenant feels like a terrific sequel to Prometheus. In that you have... What was... David's twin's name. I couldn't tell you. I forgot. Honestly, I forgot that it was a twin. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you have Michael Fassbender again playing an android. But was it Arthur? Not... Let me look. What? Why not? Yeah. So you have him playing this android again with this crew that goes to this planet and to find out kind of what happened to the engineers and David, right? Isn't he part of the initial kind of mission? Like well, finding him? So the character the character that he plays in Alien Covenant initially is Walter. But but yeah, so David I think what isn't it that David is on the planet already? I don't think yes. David was with them. Yeah, so there's a switcheroo no. like at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you have Walter and David who are very much the same, both played by Michael Fassbender, but have fundamentally different views of humanity. Right. And their back and forth is phenomenal. Uh-huh. And even, like, Danny McBride is, like, great in that movie. Right. But then, like, the third act, it was like, okay, now we're going to do Alien. Right. But we're going to make it really short with very low stakes. Right. That, like... Uh, who cares? Like we've we've literally seen this before. We've done, yeah, exactly. Which is like almost beat for beat. It's the same <laughs> damn thing. And I was like, dude, come on, man! Yeah. Like everything up to this, I was like, this is great. You've got like the weird, like the black goo stuff, and you got the like it's all of the stuff that carried over from Prometheus, and a lot of the same thematic stuff, but. Yeah. Now we're just doing Alien because, well, people didn't like Prometheus because there wasn't any aliens in it. And yeah. there was the one at the end, but it didn't look like the alien, so... Yeah. Now, yeah. I w- so I will say Alien Covenant to me is an improvement overall because I think visually it is still a really impressive film. I think Prometheus, yes. o- Prometheus overall is more impressive, but I don't think that there's a huge downgrade when getting to Alien Covenant. Um, I wouldn't say so. I think it's just a matter of the scope, like the scale of it isn't, but it doesn't need to be. Exactly. There is, it succeeds where Prometheus to me failed, which is it gives you a reason to care about almost all of the characters that you need to care about. Danny McBride's character, Billy Crudup, even, I mean, it's weird, right? Because they've got, what's his name? The guy, shit, the guy that played Tommy Wiseau in the Disaster Artist. James Franco? James Franco. Even though he's in yeah. it for, like, three seconds, you still... Are, there is an... Like, that those that little bit of time you spend with him is enough to be like, oh, well, holy shit, not only am I surprised that they killed him off this quickly, but, like, you know, he seemed like a good guy, and this is a big hit. And it's also, like, what the team is now missing. Um, I totally forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, so, I think that they... If this was ultimately meant to be a, sorry, we'll do better next time for Prometheus... I think that they did succeed in, hey, you guys really didn't connect with any of these characters, because I think that that was, I don't think I'm the only one that felt that way about Prometheus. So I think that they did take that criticism to heart and really put a lot more emphasis on the characterization in this movie. And Mm -hmm. they were also smart about getting a lot of really fucking good actors. Michael Fassbender, Billy Crudup, Danny McBride, Damian Bashir. I'm not super familiar with Catherine Waterston, or Waterston. She was the strong female lead in this film. I thought she Mm -hmm. did pretty phenomenally. Yeah. For, for being someone that I wasn't super familiar with. But they I think they just did a good job of giving you more reasons to care. I think there's a scene that I remember kind of – it kind of reminded me of – do you, you remember The Lost World, the second Jurassic Park movie? Yeah. You remember the scene where, like, they're, they're being chased through the long grass by velociraptors? Yes. There's a scene yes. that's like that, I think, in Alien Covenant, if I'm remembering correctly, where, like, they're – kind of getting surrounded by I don't think it's xenomorphs but it's some sort of like alien being on the planet and they're all kind of like <gasps> backed into a corner kind of thing I will right. also say so while I am going to knock alien covenant for breaking the cardinal rule which is imply is way scarier than show when it comes to a monster mm-hmm. the xenomorph does look good it doesn't look scary the way that the little bits of it did in Alien and Aliens, but I would say 
outside of Alien and Aliens, this is the best depiction of a xenomorph. Like, if you're going to show it in full light, this is the way to do it, I think. It's, just, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, good, it's a good rendering and good design on the xenomorphs. So, to that end, and this is, like, bouncing back to Alien, I wonder if the reason it wasn't shown was similar to the reasons you don't see the shark in Jaws. Because, like, in Jaws, the the shark animatronic kept breaking. Right. And so that's why there's so many shots where you don't see the shark. But then, in Alien, because it was a guy in a suit... It was... Have, have and, you seen clips of the guy just walking around the set in that thing? No. It looks worse than a basketball mascot. It's so weird looking. Right. And that's... I think that might... Because, you know, the the Tom Skerritt bear hug. Yeah. Which I feel like... Sounds like a like a weird sex like thing. In, no, it sounds somebody. like an indie band from, from like Nick and Nora's Tom, Infinite Playlist soundtrack. I'm scared, <laughs> It's like that, or like a like a like a PG answer from Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, but yeah, like that looks funky. It's short enough and quick enough that it doesn't look like too cheap, right? But now that like. Because one of the big problems is, like, how does something like that move? And when you have a guy in a suit, it's kind of hard to pull that off. Right. So I think that's one of the reasons for they, as, you know, because, like, Alien Resurrection and Alien 3, that was that was the era where, I think we've talked about this, where, like, CG was kind of coming into its own, and they were just like, oh, we can do this thing now. Like, right. Not really thinking, like, how does it really look? Right. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you compare this to like, I mean, obviously there's, you know, 30 years almost in between. Well, about 20 years at least. But compare this to the CG Xenomorph in Alien 3. And it, yeah, Alien 3 is just so, like, just it, I mean, any, any bit of, of kind of living in the movie that you might have been in that film is just instantly gone as soon as that thing pops up on screen. So, yeah, I mean, to to the movie's credit, I, I... I can't agree with the choice to show it all the way because it does just take any mystery and, and true terror out of the monster for me, but it still is interesting. I think the the most disturbing part of the movie for me is when you start to see, I, I don't remember if it was sketches or what it was, because while I didn't care for Numi Rapace's character in Prometheus, if you're gonna, if you're gonna force me to become invested in something and I'm coming back to Alien Covenant. At least, like, give me more of that. But to kill her off screen in the way that they did, just I was not a fan of that shit at all. Yeah, that that really felt like a, a huge, just like nut punch in terms of just it. Yeah, it just well, it, and that that's one of the reasons that to me it felt more like a studio. Like, yeah. you got to have more Alien in it because. Yeah. You know, she was the... It felt like she was supposed to be very much the through line of, like, the sort of, like, journey. And, you sure. know, that that whole, like, kind of spiritual question that they bring up in Prometheus. Right. Well, and... To, like... Well, and but then again, like, this is a franchise that... I mean, that's not the first time they've done that shit. No, it's not. Alien 3, they kill Newt in the first, like, five minutes, and I'm like, right. wow, okay, so the whole point of Aliens... And Griggs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and but I guess that's the thing, is, like, 
in Alien 3, at least you still had Sigourney Weaver. Prometheus ends with right. uh, Numira Pace's character and David's head. That's it. Uh-huh. So yep. to get to come back and the only full character, like completely intact character that you have, it's like, oh, uh, well, she did. Yeah. But I w- like the, there was a pretty impressively disturbing, I guess it's like sketches, because I think it's David, like kind of his scientific notes on what he had done to Numi Rapace. Because if I remember correctly, right. what was it? Was it that he had, he hadn't like bisected her. He had like, it, was it that he had given her to, like, like gotten her into an alien or what, what was it? Something like that. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, it was like super creepy and fun. Yeah. And yeah. It, it was like definitely a Geiger inspired sketch uh. from David. And I thought that was, that was, if you're like, fuck you for doing that with that character. But if you're going to do that with that character, I guess that's like the theme of this movie, right? It's like, fuck you for this decision. But like, mm-hmm. at least you executed on that bad decision. Well, right. Yeah. Right. But, um, but no, like the the to me the highlight of that movie was Walter and David and their yeah. kind of like interplay. But I will give you that you do have more reason to care about the crew in this movie than you yeah. did in Prometheus. Yeah. But to me, that wasn't the point. Like, yeah. I very much felt like the crew was just a, a vehicle to move the story along for these broader this bigger story that he was kind of developing and i think in you know it's it's this question of like humanity's orange origin while also being an origin for the the xenomorphs as well and kind of tying those two together i don't know it's interesting i i don't know what part studio influence played in that, but it's definitely to me a pretty interesting like kind of concept. Yeah. And okay. I'll also admit, like I do have a kind of bias that I'm frustrated with like modern Christian art, I guess is the way you would put it. Because if you look back through history, like biblical stories and, not even necessarily Christian, but like religious and spiritual stories have been the source of so many great works, right. paintings and sculptures and songs and stories. And religion now, is basically like, the reason that art came out of the middle ages. So yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then now you have anybody that sets out with like a, like pointedly religious intent makes pandering bland shallow garbage okay and it sucks it's not enjoyable it's not uplifting it's just like the mo- you know the, like the left behind series kind of thing yeah like okay. you taught me this dad it feels like that it's like we're gonna spoon feed you exactly what you want to hear right so like when there is a you know ostensibly mainstream film that tackles those themes yeah whether it's just anything spiritual typically it's done so in a way that's you know far more like interesting profound or like brings up like real you know existential questions a lot better than this you know pointedly religious organization kevin sorbo bullshit (laughs) (laughs) 
That's another. That's the that that's the opening band for Tom Scarrett Bear Hug is Kevin Sorbo bullshit. <laughs> It's, right. a hell, it's a hell of a ticket. Yeah, no, I, I, okay, so I will, I will give you that point. To, I'll, I'll give you a little slack for that point. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. It is nice to see a thoughtful, somewhat secular view on a on a on a faith based religious religious question. Um, sure, sure, and and that's the thing too. Like, I don't care where, you know, a particular story lands if there is an answer. But I like that there is no answer, and I like that. I think that science fiction is best when it does stuff like that. It sure it makes you think about like bigger things uh-huh. and bigger questions because that's what sci-fi is: is a vehicle to kind of examines humanity's place in the universe and our relationship to the universe and to one another. Yeah, I think it's just the issue is I don't believe. That a lot of those, uh, a lot of the lack of answers was due to a lack of answers. It felt very much like the lack of answers in the most recent Star Wars trilogy, where it's not so much that they thought about it and were like, oh, this would be better if we just didn't answer it, but they just didn't think about answering it and just were Mm. moving on to the next thing. Like the one guy who touched the black goo and turned into a zombie. Uh-huh. Why the fuck did he turn into a zombie? And why was that never addressed later on? How did Numi Rapace get pregnant in that series of events we talked about before? What it, it just, it's a lot of things. Was What's the guy's name that did, oh shit, hold on. I'm going to look it up. The guy that did Lost and he works with J.J. Abrams a good bit and he's just like uh, the, the okay. mystery box guy. Damon Lindelof. Damon Lindelof, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I feel like there's a lot of that going on in da- the movie. Damon Lindoff actually, I think, was one of the writers on that film. Yeah. Interestingly, she's he is not credit. Am I looking? Oh, I'm looking at Alien Covenant. Hold on. Let me get back here. Let me just – you go ahead with, yeah. with what you were about no, to say. No, he, he was John Spates and Damon Lindoff were the writers on – Okay. Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just – he has a, a – penchant for asking questions with no interest in ever answering them and it's not because he's considered whether or not to answer it it's just he moved the fuck on because all he really wants to do is ask a question so that you be get it's it's he's gaslighting us basically by just asking us questions <laughs> just to keep us interested and then stringing us along when like we're like well wait what the fuck happened with like the zombie guy oh i already answered that didn't i no you never mm-hmm. answered that no 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 we we, we address that let's move on like that's what he does. There's a great college humor sketch on Lam- or uh, with Damon Lindelof. If you haven't seen it, just look up college humor Damon Lindelof, and it, it it's like it expresses what I want to express so perfectly that I don't feel like I need to. Now, yeah, I mean, I look at Damon Lindelof as kind of the American Stephen Moffat, and that he wants to like set up very big things just because he wants to set up very big things. Like, how much of uh, Doctor Who have you watched? Oh, man. So, my fiancé and I have been watching that. So, I've, I've, we're, it's weird. We're right now, I started watching it, I started watching it as David Tennant's run was ending. And I started okay. with, I started back with the reboot. So, I started with Christopher Eccleston and then worked my way through. And then I stopped uh-huh. after the first episode with Peter Capaldi. But we are now, we've been binging it. And so, we're now back up to Peter Capaldi. So, now I'm, like, actually making it all the way through where I had okay. not before. But yes, I've okay. seen a lot of it and I I 
have I've told my fiance a number of times about the difference between the two showrunners and uh-huh. noticeable differences between the way that overall storylines are put together and then executed. Right, because you know, the first showrunner Russell T Davies had a penchant for DSX Machina. Yep. Hit the button, everything's fine. Yep. Whereas Stephen Moffat, every new character is the most important person who's ever existed in the history of the universe because they are the one destined to save the universe from whatever. Right. It's like this very big, grandiose, over, like, you know, and, and the explanations are always like, where the fuck did this come from, you right. know? And to be fair with so, Russell T. Davies, a lot of his Deus Ex Machina penchant came from an homage to the original series. At least that's that's how I see it. But yeah, so that's like that's where my issue with it is just I I think that ultimately I don't there I don't have enough faith in the story based on what I've been shown with Prometheus to believe that there was intent behind the lack of answers. Because there are so okay. many things that, like, just if they were intending not to give us answers, then they just suck at storytelling. Because it's just, it's not a, to me, it's not a fulfilling, it's not a fulfilling storyline to have this specific thread left unanswered. Also, bonus gripe. This is the second movie that we've talked <laughs> Bonus gripe. Yeah, second movie we've talked about with unnecessary old man makeup. The okay. bit with Guy Pierce at the end uh-huh. seemed weirdly unnecessary. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It just it seemed like yeah. you you get Guy Pierce's old Wayland when you I feel like you could have just had young Wayland. I don't know. I guess you then you would have you wouldn't have got the mind-bending twist that Charlize Theron is actually Wayland's daughter which has no ramifications whatsoever to the storyline. But it's just like weird like they pay they put him in a ton of old man makeup and like he's really committing to this old man bit and like uh-huh. it doesn't really serve the story in any way and it just makes the engineer killing him at the end just kind of like weird because like he's beating up an old man and like I don't know. <laughs> it's just a bunch of yeah. It's just it's not my bag. All right. Well, I'll revisit that movie soon and maybe <laughs> we we can we can come back to it. But no, I just I saw it in. I saw it in theaters when I was living down in Orlando, mm-hmm. and I just came out of it like, what the fuck? That was, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> now... And I guess we... you did too, but in a, you know, decidedly different <laughs> way. Yeah, my holy shit was like, why have you done this? I can't believe you've done this. Um, looking at his filmography, so that, that uh, any other thoughts on the on, on those or any other movies that he's, that he's done? I mean... No, I mean, I think we pretty much covered it. He's got uh, two more. One is the the last duel is in post-production, and he's currently filming a film called House of Gucci. Yeah, and I think this is the one with Adam Driver and Jared Leto. Yeah, Al Pacino, Jared Leto, Adam Driver, Jeremy Irons, Jack Houston, Lady Gaga. Yeah, this is going to be... This is not, like, a subject matter that I would really ever have a huge interest in, but... With the cast being what it is, I think it's tough to not watch this. So. It's based on a book, The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour, and greed. Yeah. I think there could be something there. Due out November 24th. Jesus, and it's still filming. That is... 
<laughs> Wait. It's mind-blowing. The Last Duel. Okay, this was the movie that, that I was thinking of. The Last Duel. This is... Okay, so this is what I was wondering whether or not this had anything to do with the, the Duelist movie, that we the his first movie. But I guess it doesn't. Uh-huh. It just... He's doing another one. But this one... Okay, so Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are actually in the movie. They're not just writing it. Ben Affleck is playing King wow. Charles the... He's playing King Charles the Sixth. Oh, no. Okay. And it's also got Adam Driver. So he's working on two Adam Driver projects at one time? That's... I guess so. Nice. And then we've got uh, Queen and Country, which he's attached to directing. Another untitled Alien prequel. Kit Bag. I can only imagine what that is. And then this could be like one of the... Cause, so on IMDb, people like to just like troll movies sometimes that aren't actually mm-hmm. happening. But Gladiator 2, which for those of you who have not seen it, at the end of it, Russell Crowe fucking dies. So that'll be interesting to see. Have you heard any of the like alleged rumors of what a Gladiator 2 is supposed to entail? No, I can only imagine. Time travel. Oh. <laughs> or perhaps... A character that, like, I've also heard that it's going to follow, like, Lucius, Connie Nielsen's character's son. son. So, like, yeah, I don't, I I don't know. But, yeah, no, I remember hearing that there was, like, some kind of idea to make it have something to do with time travel. Okay, yeah, I'm seeing uh, an article from... April 7th of this year from Cinema Blend. Chris Hemsworth and Russell Crowe. Man, this does not look great. <laughs> I'm just scamming. Okay, we might have to we're, we're going to have to, I need to do some research here and we're going to have to bring we're, we're going to bring this back up. Don't worry. Oh boy. <laughs> well, uh, I think on that note. Yeah, so I mean that, that pretty much that, that kind of covers his filmography past present and future chris tell them how they can find us so you can find us on the facebooks on the insta that's what Mm -hmm. the kids call it instagram Um, yeah and you can get at us at making a scene mail at gmail.com send us your death threats send us your love letters send us your questions concerns comments or what the hell you want to hear us talk about yeah we are going to be going over a pretty exciting topic next week but just because we think we know what we want to go over if you've got a better idea let us know and we're doing these filmmaker spotlights every other week and we know about a couple that we want to go over but we want to hear from you too if there's a writer director cinematographer uh, producer even producer anybody in the film industry that you want to hear about we're willing to do an episode on making a scene mail at gmail.com facebook instagram chris is going to get a tiktok cool all right guys find us on spotify yeah spotify google podcasts you can find us on anchor thanks for listening guys see you next time bye